But for me, um, as the leader or as the project manager, you, you've got to know your people and you've got to know all 56 of them in my case. Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. This is our bi-monthly meeting to talk about what really matters to you as a professional project manager. It's our goal to give you some words of advice and encouragement by hearing the experiences of other professionals and leaders in the field. I'm your host, Nick Walker, and with me is the one who holds down the fort here, Bill Yates. And Bill, today's podcast is a direct result of a request from a listener. My request. Yeah, how about that? We heard from Amy. I think she's in Washington State. Yeah, she reached out to us and asked specifically that we have a guest on our program, someone involved in public safety, particularly when it comes to managing wildfires. Right, right. And we were delighted. Wendy did some research and she contacted Mark. (laughs) It came together with Mark. So we're delighted to have Mark on as our guest and, and talk through this in detail. Well, let's meet him, all right? U.S. Forest Service Retired Division Chief Mark Vontillo started his career in fighting wildfires in 1986 on the Tahoe National Forest. He's been a team member working engines, hotshots, and helicopters, and he was the incident commander for California Team 3 for many years. Mark has extensive fire experience, as well as some all-hazard responses, such as in Hurricane Rita in Texas, the Space Shuttle Discovery Recovery Mission as well. He was the commander in 2017's Whittier Fire in Santa Barbara County, California, and also in the Thomas Fire later that year. He also commanded the fighting of the Soberanas Fires along the Big Sur Coast, one of the costliest wildfire operations in U.S. history. Mark has a passion for this work and wants to pay it forward. And Mark, we welcome you to manage this. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, I've got to ask you first off, we have just come off one of the most destructive wildfire seasons in California's history. Fresh in our minds, of course, is the fire that destroyed the town of Paradise in Northern California, the campfire. This is obviously a career that takes a special breed of human. What led you to this career choice? So... This, this may seem like a, a, a different way to start this conversation, but really uh, it had to do with uh, my father passing away when I was 12. Um, he had a heart attack in front of me, and this was pre-911 days when you just pick up the phone and dial 911 now, but uh, I had to run around the block to get to my grandfather's house to tell him what had happened. Uh, he came back, and it just seemed like a long delay for emergency personnel to get there. That was really my first exposure to that, and I thought, you know, I, I'd like to to be that person someday trying to help somebody. So that's really where it started. Fast forward along uh, through high school, graduate, uh, go to work for a company called Hewlett Packard. Uh, (laughs) But I was also volunteering at a uh, fire station and that really seemed to resonate with me more. So I worked nights at uh, Hewlett Packard and I worked days during the fire station and then uh, found out about this wildland firefighting thing uh, and decided to apply and almost forgot that I applied when they called and said, hey, we have a job for you. And I said, great. Wow. <laughs> and so I left uh, Hewlett Packard and went to work for them and, and never looked back. We want to start off, too, by sort of giving our listeners a little bit of perspective on kind of what it is you do. Uh, and, and a good example of that, I think, was back in July of 2017 when you were the commander on the Whittier Fire in Southern California. This one presented some special challenges, not the least of which was trying against incredible odds to rescue 80 children trapped at the Circle V Ranch Camp during the height of the fire. 
Give us uh, an idea of what went on there. So interestingly enough, uh, that morning, uh, that, that day, there was already another large wildfire going on um, near my station. And I, I rolled out of the station that morning and they had a very large column on it. And I was thinking to myself, it's awfully early to see that kind of fire behavior. They're going to have a rough day, you know, and so I'll just hope that it's OK. And I, I went to work and it was a very hot day. And about one o'clock, uh, the tones went off for a wildfire on my district and uh as soon as I came out of the station, I saw the smoke and I thought, wow, we're going to be in for it. It was probably 110 degrees that day. Thinking ironically to myself, because this is how we think sometimes, I was thinking, boy, I shouldn't have said anything this morning about the other fire because now it's happening to me. Hmm. Uh, but as I rolled up on scene, there was uh, some people trying to get out of the, the driveway the, that I pulled into. It forked one way to the left, one way to the right, the Whittier, fire, or the Whittier camp to the right and the Circle V to the left. Um, as I got out of the car, I realized we had a language barrier. Um, it was a Middle Eastern uh, language that I wasn't familiar with, and they were having a hard time understanding me. And so I was trying to evacuate them out. And they finally got the word that I needed them to drive out. And then they, they got going. And as I looked over to the other side, my friend Ray, who was a camp uh, counselor at the Circle V Ranch, said, hey, Mark, um, do you want us to come out? And I said, yeah. Do you have any kids? And he says, yep. And then he goes, we don't have any wheels to get them out. And I said, well, then stay there. We'll, we'll try to get somebody up there to uh, shelter in place. So immediately now I have a life danger, life uh, danger problem on my hands mm. and am still trying to evacuate the other people from the other camp to get them out. They got out uh, successfully. But for the next six hours, uh, it was a cat and mouse game with trying to get rescuers up to these kids. Um, I'm sure you can probably find some footage online of, of what they were facing trying to drive up there, the, the, the amount of fire behavior. But, um, you know, dedicated effort through a lot of people uh, that I'm very familiar with. We all worked together for years. They knew the situation. I didn't have to give a lot of direction, uh, but they also knew the risk that they were about to encounter, um, you know, for their, for their own lives. But uh, six hours of, uh, you know, having a life priority when you still have a wildfire that's moving and growing and, and leaps and bounds and, is heading for structures and heading for other things, you know, but that becomes your number one priority is life. And so once, uh, once they got rescued and, and got out to safety, that was a big, big relief for uh, me and everybody else. We could start to focus on the fire itself. Mm -hmm. Mark, I, I did, I was able to see some of the newsreel from this and right. it's just, you know, it's, it's jaw dropping, it's frightening and it's heroic. How many, just to give people a sense, how big was the team that you guys had that were uh, trying to, to get at the kids that were needing rescue? Oh, I'd say so. Um, on the initial attack, we call that. Um, if I count them up, uh, one, two, three, four, five, maybe seven or eight people focused mm -hmm. on, on trying to get up there. And the rest of them were fighting fire and trying to keep the fire away from certain things. But really, the probably about seven or eight. And it, it struck me how you had to quickly assess the situation, prioritize. And like you said, life was at stake in this case. So then your priority one is that. So you put your best resources on it. And it's, you know, those kind of decisions. That's an example of why we wanted to have this conversation with you. You guys are making quick decisions that are, in your case, are life or death. And in our case, for most project managers, it's more, okay, what's the best use of resources? Uh, we wanted to pick your brain. We appreciate this opportunity to pick your brain on some of the lessons yeah. learned from things like uh, this example. Yeah. Now, Nick, yeah. I was thinking this may be an example or a good time for us to call a timeout and get Mark to talk about some of these definitions. Like he was a type one commander, you know, so we need to 
do some help our mm-hmm. listeners understand what's type one, what's type five, what does this mean? Yeah, what what, what is it? What is a type one commander? What uh, what does that okay. entail? Um, so a type one incident commander is the highest uh, complexity incident commander that you can be or the leader of a team. Uh, type two is just a little bit less complexity. Type three, it, as it goes down, it's less and less complex. So uh, initially when I started on this Whittier fire, for example, I was the type three incident commander okay. because of the scale and the scope of people. Um, and as it moved on, uh, we quickly realized that we didn't need to stop at a type two. This was going to be a type one incident. And so ironically, my team was the team that was on call. Huh. So I went from the initial attack incident commander to the team commander of, of overall of the incident. But that's the team side of it. Um, my day job as a division chief uh, in the org chart uh, is just essentially the top of the fire organization for the district. I had two battalion chiefs underneath me. And then underneath the battalion chiefs, you have engines, patrols, dozers, hotshots, helicopters. And so it's just a, it's a pretty simple hierarchy organization. Yeah. And as I was looking at it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but it looked like type five is more like local, uh, maybe exactly. in, a, in a small town or village. And then type yeah, in four. charge of maybe an accident, you know, or something okay. on the highway. Right, right. And then as you progress through it, then at type one, then your team was likely to get deployed to a different state. Or uh, somewhere else, you know, in the uh, in the northwest that was battling a fire, you guys may get the call to to go there. Yeah, so you you uh, we go through a call period, a twenty four hour, eight hour, and two hour, and it changes every week. So you're on the you've got to be ready to go within those time frames. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you're on two hour call, it's your we call it hard call. Uh, you're going to go immediately, and uh, sometimes you may just be on regional call, and sometimes you may be on national call as well. So anywhere in the country. So, Bill, he's definitely a project manager. I yeah. Mean, this, this is, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Yeah, maybe even a program manager. This is at a high level. Yeah, and high stakes. Very interesting. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about how that applies to uh, to project management. I, I mean, um, uh, the, obviously, he's managing uh, in, incredible projects. I can't even imagine what is involved in as an incident commander. Uh, you know, what what are your duties, really? Well, uh, first and foremost is the safety of all the, the public and the firefighters, right? Um, job number one, keep everybody safe. And, and as we say, return everybody home at the end of the shift or the end of the, the tour, however it is. But um, it could be a lot of different things. So um, I, w- I would get an in-briefing from the agency administrator, which is typically the forest supervisor or whoever the agency administrator of the agency is. Um, what are their priorities? What, how do they manage uh, fire on the landscape on their land? Um, you know, some people manage it. Some people have a hundred percent suppression. Um, they don't want it to creep around and, and do things. And so you got to put them out. So that requires a different strategy and different set of tactics. And so, uh, my job is really to overall watch not only the operations piece, and that's basically what we've been talking about, but I have to be fiscally responsible and yeah. So, um, our logistics guys always tell me, uh, you know, without logistics, it's just a dream. <laughs> you don't have that stuff. And, and they're right. You know, if, yeah. if we don't have the tools and whatever it is that we need from, you know, sleeping arrangements to uh, tape to batteries to all that stuff that makes uh, makes it work, you know. Yeah. Mark, uh, practically speaking, help us think through, OK, there's an incident. There is a fire. Uh, a wildfire has broken out. And what's the, you know, from a project management standpoint, how do you scope the uh, project? So how do you guys determine the scope of the incident, the fire, and then 
How did how is the determination made as to well we need a type five team a type three or a type one? How does that take place? So um, there's a lot of things that go into it. Actually, the time of the year can be one. Uh, what's the weather doing? Is it worsening or is it going to get better? Or you know, is it uh, 95 degrees today? But we know tomorrow we have a snowstorm coming in. Um, mm. So lots of different ways to think about it. But really, it's uh, when you have just uh, the general summer. Um, fire going on, the complexity rating sheet is what we use. And it's just a form that comes out of the National Wildland Fire Coordinating Group Mm. um, that asks a series of questions that you can answer yes or no to. And you add up a a number and it says, you know, maybe you should consider ordering the next level team. But that doesn't mean you have to because your weather may change or your, your resources may become more abundant or Maybe you don't have. Re- There's a lot of things that go into the complexity incident. As an incident commander for a Type One team, do you have peers who are also speaking into that, or are you guys kind of waiting for orders? No. So we have peers. Uh, we have what we call the CNG, the uh, Command and General Staff. So it's the five of us uh, or six of us: the Logistics, Safety, Plans, Finance, Operations, Liaison, and Information Officer. Those are the key components to the team. Uh, you know, and so they'll be able to evaluate on the in briefing if they're going to. You know, the example, I guess, would be the uh, space shuttle recovery mission, right? That was a logistical challenge more than it was anything else. Uh, so it was heavy on logistics that time, not necessarily operations. Yeah. So there's and, a need for a lot of communication among uh, peers and then coordinating who's got the best resources and the best abilities to go at this. Correct. Uh, and I, it, there's a lot of communication that goes on, yeah, uh, not yeah. only internally, but externally in our agency with other agencies. Right. So I'm just, I'm kind of laughing, Mark. I'm thinking of the project managers that are listening to this going, yeah, our company doesn't do that. We don't right. talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, surprisingly enough, even I, we're really not any different than any other company. You know, we have, we have parts of our agencies that don't communicate that well either, you mm-hmm. know, and, yeah. and really that's, uh, that's the core of, of success. There's got to be times, I'm, I'm thinking about, um, you know, communication with team members and, and motivating team members. There's got to be times when it's a little downheartening, uh, really. Uh, the, the nature of the work uh, is, is there's a lot of bad news in, involved. Uh, and that sometimes occurs with uh, other projects. Mm-hmm. How do you keep the team motivated? How do you keep their incentive going? Yeah, you know, you're right. I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who who referred to his uh, her sad bucket was full. You know, and oh, I thought, well, well yeah, that's that's what we we face a lot of times. Um, it's not always a good outcome. We we do have you know horrific injuries and, and fatalities. Um, and so, how does the team? How do you keep the team focused on the mission? More and more communication. Um, it, and it really is up to me to understand how everybody on the team is going to react to a given situation, whether it's, you know, a bad situation, a good situation. Um, I've had people that have lost their homes on the incident that they were on. So what, you know, how do I, how do I address that as a leader? Um, Again, it's, you just need to communicate with those people. And I think that's the biggest thing, Um, not shying away from it, but taking it head on and asking the hard questions, you know. Mm. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you, and it's a little bit of a, it's kind of a leadership related question. Um, I think you can relate to this as a a type one commander. There were times where you were dropped into a situation, dropped into a a location where you were taking the position of another leader. You know, so a fire may, a wildfire may have grown such that, um, you know, now we need a type one commander. So Mark and his team come in. 
Um, that I think many project managers can relate to that. It may be that my project has gotten so big now that now management says, Bill, you're not capable to, to manage this. I need somebody else to come in. I need Lisa to come in and take this over. So, you know, in the case where you were that person, you were coming in and taking over something. How did you handle that transition? Was it a, was it a simple, hey, I got more authority than you, so step out of my way. And by the way, I'm going to use your resources. You know, how did, <laughs> how did you handle that? What are some uh, techniques you used? You know, certainly sometimes it's an awkward situation um, with some people because they feel uh, like if we just hang on to it for a few more days, you know, we'll, we'll get our arms around this thing. Yeah. There's no need for a type one to come in here. But, you know, I don't make those decisions when I'm ordered. We, we follow, you know, if somebody wants the team, we're going to show up. Um, I've had the discussion with other leaders prior to taking it over. There is a, a shadow period that we have to get up to speed. They'll brief us, in brief us. And I'll ask that question. I said, so if you stayed here four or five more days, would you be successful? And, if, you know, they say yes, and I agree with them. Hmm. We'll both go back to that agency administrator and say, look, you can save a lot of transition time here, you know, and a lot of less exposure for these new resources trying to get up to speed if you just give them a few more days. So, yes, we have the conversation. And other times it's pretty straightforward that, no, you're not, you know, this is this hmm. is going to even go bigger than me. You know, I may get replaced in 14 days. That's such an outstanding point, Mark. And I, I got to admit, there are times in my career when I wish I'd had the boldness to approach the person that I was you know, stepping in to replace and say, hey, do you mind just me and you? I want to have, have a one-on-one with you. Tell me what's going well from your opinion and tell me what your challenges have been. You know, what do I need to be aware of here? And I, I'm with you, man. There are times when you, that's just not going to happen. But, I, yeah. you know, there are opportunities to be bold and go ahead and ask and see if that person is open to the conversation because it could save your team so much heartache. So that, yeah, that's Yeah, you know, it's just, sometimes it's just straight personalities that don't get along. Right. Um, that person may go, no, you need to take this over. I can't work here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's fine. Um, if, if that's what needs to be done, that's just what needs to be done. One of the issues that uh, seems to always occur on, on project teams is uh, the issue of trust, especially when you're talking about life or death situations like you're involved in. Uh, how do you build that trust and make sure that, uh, that, that the team trusts the uh, leadership? Yeah, so um, when you, especially I, I thought about it when I first became the incident commander, when I came over as an operations section chief to, this, to the team, you know, they, they knew me, but they didn't work with me on a regular basis. So how did I build their trust? You know, how did I trust them to do whatever it was? Uh, one of the one of the key things that I use was trust, but verify. So I'm going to give you the rope. Um, I'm going to let you go. But, you know, at some point, I'm going to come check on it to make sure that the the end state of what I thought I wanted to have happen is happening. You know, and we, we share the same vision. And so there's a little bit of uh, friction sometimes with that. But that's the best thing to have happen to build trust so that you can you don't have to worry about it down the road. Um, I think you have to give people the opportunity at their level. So, you know, going back to, to trust, but verify again, uh, giving, giving people the freedom to do what they need to do, but also making sure that it meets your expectations as a project manager or a leader. You know, you have a vision in your head. Um, did you communicate that vision clearly to, to the rest of your team? Um, do they understand what your end state looks like? And does it meet what the agency administrator is, you know, who we're working for ultimately? Um, you know, some people want fires mopped up 100%. Other people want it mopped up 50 feet inside. Does the team understand that from our perspective, why we're not mopping it up 100%? It's for a safety reason. There's a lot of snags in there, whatever it is. But, you know, trust that they do the right thing. And again, everybody understands that in our world of that time-compressed environment that we work in, and we're making quick decisions, 
Um, everybody needs to come home. That's that's the goal. Um, Mark, we I was trying to recall on a type one team as incident commander, how many did you have like uh, 40, 50 people on so that 50, team? So 56 people on 56, the team. 56, okay. And I'm thinking, you know, as a leader of this team, you're thinking I've got people at all different levels in terms of experience and, and even, you know, that level of trust that you built up with them. So I, I think a project manager, I think of myself with uh, past projects, there were times when I wanted to delegate someone to someone and I had to pick the right thing to delegate to them. And I sometimes I do the right thing. Sometimes I give them too much responsibility too early or maybe not enough. And then I really needed to count on them later and they hadn't had that experience that I wished I'd given them. So right. do you have any advice for how do you how do you delegate to, to someone to let them grow in a quote unquote less risky um, task so that you can count on them later when the stakes are higher? So um, that's a great point. And, and the one thing that I've, that I've used, and this doesn't mean, this doesn't come across as being sounding bad, but everybody's under observation, right? Yeah. Um, and that goes for me as well. I'm under observation as a leader because you're looking up and they, they like the way you lead or, they, or you, you know, some don't. But as far as how do you pick that right person and get the right delegation going? And then I think you have to watch their skill sets. It's knowing your people, having conversations at the dinner table, uh, at the breakfast table, whatever it is, you know, finding out who they are, what their interests are. Maybe they have a special interest in something that you didn't know about. You, you can relate how can I relate that into the incident or the project down the road? That person has a skill set that I need to expose. Um, we also have trainees, a lot of trainees. We carry 13 trainees. And so those are people that are trying to get qualified in a particular position. And we really watch those people to see what are they bringing to the table. And maybe something else gets exposed. It's like, you shouldn't be a trainee in logistics. You should be a safety trainee because mm -hmm. you're really good at safety or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But for me, um, as the leader or as the project manager, you, you've got to know your people and you got to know all 56 of them in my case. That's great. And I just, you know, I'm just thinking of the numbers there. So one out of five on the team there, you've really got a special observation on them. They're being trained. And I think that's something for us to, to think about is mm -hmm. we need to have that attitude with our project teams and always be looking for that growth. That's cool. I think sometimes we don't dig. I call it uh, reach deep enough in the well. You yeah. Know, yeah. Our, our younger people. Um, it takes a long time. For us to get qualified over the years at certain certain positions, uh, but there's some there's some younger talent out there that if we didn't have the bureaucratic process, I think would be very very good in some positions. Right. I there's one topic that I really want to ask you about because it's unique for the the type of role that you've been in, and that's communication, especially communication to the public. I mean, right. We, you know, we talk a lot about communicating to stakeholders. Well, communication with the public for you, with the wildfires, especially in the incidents that you guys dealt with, there, there are two edges to that sword. You know, the, the public is craving information, and it could be because it's my community that's on fire. You know, I want to know, mm -hmm. I want information as soon as you have it, good or bad. But, you know, there's, there's, there, there's a lot of experience that you have to have to know what's the right information to give at the right time. Uh, what advice can you give us on that type of public communication? So, um, let me start this off, you know, with today's uh, social media, everything out there, people, some people believe in Twitter 100 percent. Some people <laughs> believe in, you know, what, uh, whatever it is. And, and that's the truth. And so for me, I found out that uh, doing public meetings, it was important for me as the leader, the project manager to stand up there, give them everything that I knew about the incident, the situation, the priority, 
Um, you know, they're, and, and what we often face was my neighborhood is threatened next. Why aren't you doing anything? And right. so um, clearly, clearly explaining to them that sometimes there's a competition for resources when we have so many fires going on in California that um, we're well aware that your community is there and we're doing some stuff in the background, but it's not making headlines because this particular community is really at risk. And so we have to prioritize. And I, I make sure that I explain all that to them so that they understand that we're thinking about that. Um, and, and really that helps uh, stop a lot of the questions and, and stop a lot of the social media stuff that, you know, if they just come to these public meetings, they'll get the absolute most up-to-date information that they can get. And but I, as a leader, you know, you got to lead from up front on that stuff. And I, and I, I really believe that. And I've got to ask you, because being a member of the news media myself, I've mm-hmm. got to ask you, you know, what are the challenges in, in dealing with the news media in a situation? Oh, such I can as tell it? you what challenges I have with you, right. Nick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. Tell, yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk about that later. We'll do that Step offline. outside. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, there are challenges sometimes. Um, again, man, I, I don't know how to overemphasize this communication piece, but I think um, if you don't have that young writer, that young guy that wants to make a story for himself or make a name for himself, um, I personally uh, didn't really have any issues with the media um, unless they were just blatantly wrong about something. And, and I don't think, you know, working with my public information officer on the team, uh, you know, we had to do two daily um, updates, a morning update and an evening update, and then any convers- you know, any public meetings in between that we would have. And so as long as we had the same message going out, we weren't conflicting, you know, or he wasn't tweeting something without checking with me or I didn't catch that tweet. I mean, that's where it gets uh, confusing sometimes with the media is that they'll read something here and, and somebody else said something here, and it's just because we didn't communicate internally. I've got a really basic question on that, Mark. Let's say you have a team of 20 that they're engaging the fire. Um, if the media has a chance to go to one of your team members that, you know, report to you, can they, what are your team members told? You know, hey, no, 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 you don't talk to the media. They all go through me or go through the communication coordinator. How did you got, what were your ground rules regarding that? So I think in, in certain situations, uh, you know, the whatever the line of questioning was, whether it was an operational question, a logistic question, a safety question, um, I would just direct to those people. I would defer um, to them. If it had to do with the overall incident, um, broader question of, you know, hey, do you know there's 14 fires in California? How are you guys? They they know not to talk to about that. They would come to me. But, you know, um, give again, give them the freedom to talk uh, about their own specialty, you know, that they bring to the table on these on these incidents. Mm. That's good. And I think, you know, for the projects that I've been on, team members appreciate it. If they know, if they just know the boundaries. Let me know right. what I can talk about. Let me know what I should not talk about and where I direct it. Then they're good to go. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes there, in the in-briefing, there are things that we get that, you know, hey, you're not allowed to talk about this and I can't even talk about it. If, if you get that question, refer them to here. Right. And so, um, but for the most part, uh, it, it's been a good relationship with me over the years. Okay, I want to switch gears. I've got nerdy questions for you here because you guys have really cool resources. You have uh, dozers, you have helicopters, you're dropping water, you have you know all this heavy equipment. Even the you know the you would set up a tent camp, just boom like that, so you can yeah. meet the needs of the community. Um, there are a lot of resources that you guys have to track, and I'm trying to visualize how you did that. Um, this, you know maybe within your team or maybe across the different uh, task forces. So how did you guys, how do you keep up with all the resources? So um, there's a little 
little thing called ICS, Incident Command System, that we have. Okay. Um, helps track resources, helps uh, divide and conquer uh, supervision responsibilities. But as far as each resource, everybody gets an order to an incident. So, um, for example, if you are an incident commander or a division supervisor, you're giving it an O number, O-1.3. O is for overhead. If you have an E number, you're an engine. If you have an A number, you're an aircraft, um, so on and so forth. And so everything is tracked uh, from the moment you check in to the moment you check out. Uh, and that's how everybody is accounted for. Really. Okay. So you didn't leave any bulldozers in another state or anything like that, to your knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> once the project is finished, once the fire is out, uh, where, where do you go then? I mean, what do you do? Do you have some sort of debriefing, um, you know, a recognition, uh, uh, talking about what you could have done differently? Uh, what happens then? Yeah. So um, we definitely have what we call an AAR, an after action review. Um, talks about, you know, um, what the situation was. So everybody comes together at the end and we all have a same common operating picture of what just happened. And then we talk about uh, what, what can we do to sustain our strengths on that incident? What went right? And then what do we need to do to improve on the next one? Um, it's really those three questions and that's all we keep it to. Um, it's not meant to be a two hour debrief. Uh, it's meant to be an after action review and it's, it's really meant not to take any notes either because people will remember more of it uh, for the next incident out. As far as, um, you know, after that, um, we'll generally try to go have a team dinner and stay in a hotel, uh, depending upon the incident. If the incident had a bad outcome, we may just want to all go home, mm -hmm. you know. Mark, that's great. And the idea of a debrief, and in your case, it's called the after action review. Is that right? The AAR? Correct. Yeah. You capture such good information. I love the simplicity of it. There are three questions that you address. How do you capture that information and then share it for the future incidents? Is that something that you can easily access? Yeah, so um, we'll do an executive summary also at the end of the incident, which is uh, a little bit more in-depth overview of each function, um, and that will that will uh, reside with the forest or or the agency administrator so that they can reference it. And then also, I have a responsibility to talk to uh, what we have the lessons learned um, center, which is out of Tucson, Arizona. Um, and if we need to share something, we'll share it with them. And then they'll, they'll send some people out to dig deeper into it to get to a, you know, a lesson learned. But there's certainly a place where we're uh, cataloging all that stuff, good and bad. You've had quite a career. And, and I just want to sort of close our time by asking you a little bit about the highlights of your career. Uh, you know, looking back, uh, maybe some wins, something that really impressed you. Uh, do you have anything like that that you can think of? I, you know, I think uh, probably in my younger days, it was always, can we catch the darn fire? <laughs> Finally hooking one at 20 acres instead of, you know, 200,000 acres. Mm. Um, those were fun. Um, you really can find that, that yourself, you didn't think you could push yourself that far. Um, and as you get longer in your career, those those opportunities go by the wayside because now you have to lead people to do that. And that's definitely a younger person's job, but, you know building line and pulling hose and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I think, uh, probably what I'm most proud of is, is just being able to have a positive impact on people, I think, uh, and trying to pay it forward to, to the next generation behind me. That's, that's really where it's, where it's at for me. As a matter of fact, um, 
Right now, I'm working with the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, uh, which helps people uh, that have had, you know, um, either trauma, accidents, fatalities, helps those families out to, to bridge the gap between, uh, you know, getting through all that stuff and grieving and, and all of that. And so that to me, that's very important to work. That's outstanding. And, and you're coming from such a voice of experience and legitimacy in that. I, uh, I deeply admire the service that you've given to us. And um, you've got a lot to share. So I'm, I'm delighted that you're not just hanging up the boots, but you're actually, you know, staying involved that way. That's wonderful. Yeah. I appreciate you guys having me. I was, uh, I was surprised, but th- at the same time excited. So mm-hmm. thank you for having me. Mark, this has been a fascinating discussion, and we so much appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. We have sent you a little gift uh, ahead of uh, this time together that uh, managed this coffee mug, and we hope you'll continue to use that and uh, remember us fondly here. I will. Thank you guys very much. We're so glad that one of our listeners suggested this topic today, and we want to invite all our listeners to contact us with any suggestions or comments about our podcasts. So email us at manage underscore this at velocityteach.com. We would love to know what kinds of guests you'd like to see on the program. And a reminder that by listening to this podcast, you just earned some PDUs, professional development units, toward renewing your project management certifications. To claim them, Go to VelociTeach.com and choose Manage This Podcast from the top of the page. Click the button that says Claim PDUs and click through the steps. That's it for us here on Manage This. We hope you'll tune back in on May 21st for our next podcast. In the meantime, please visit us at VelociTeach.com slash Manage This to subscribe to this podcast, to see a transcript of the show, or to contact us. And tweet us at manage underscore this if you have any questions about our podcasts or about project management certifications. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep calm and manage this.